Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast. I'm Vas Christodoulou. This week's episode is a real treat for anyone who wants to understand what makes us human. Ian McGilchrist is a neuroscientist and philosopher whose book, The Master and His Emissary, offers a groundbreaking account of how the two hemispheres of our brain work together to produce our experience of the world. If I've made it sound a little technical and dry, then I promise it's anything but. In fact, it's a profoundly moving and humane book that will restore your belief in the meaning of life. Ian has now written an even more ambitious sequel called The Matter With Things, and he joined us on stage to explore its insights with the author of the award-winning His Dark Materials trilogy, Philip Pullman. Their conversation was moderated by Hannah McInnes. I've been watching a few various interviews that you've done, and I've been watching some of the videos that you've done about the book, and I appreciate that it is, uh, I think you said, as long as the Bible? Something like that. Very, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lot of work, ten years, but I've also heard that you can do an elevator pitch. Can I? <laughs> um, so I'm going to ask you just to begin by explaining or, or telling us what, what, it, what it is about. Yes. It follows on, in a way, from the um, Master and His Emissary, but it, it, it takes things much further. Effectively, what concerns me is the way we think. The great philosopher A.N. Whitehead said, as we think, we live. And the very obvious problems that we face in the world in which we live today seem to me to be the products of a certain aspect of the way our brains function. One half of the brain has evolved and specialized to enable us to manipulate the world rather than to understand it. And this part of the brain leads us to believe that all that exists is matter, and the way to understand it is to reduce it to the smallest possible parts. I think this is intellectually shoddy. I think it's morally and spiritually bankrupt, and I think it lies behind the folly that we've got ourselves into. I believe that we need, of course, the best, most open-minded science. I'm a passionate defender of science. I'm also a passionate defender of reason, true reason, that is no more than science opposed to intuition and imagination, but in fact dependent on intuition and imagination to do its job. And that these things are not in conflict, and that when you take them together, you find that in fact the right hemisphere of the brain contributes the most important part, what any of these things mean, what science means, what reason means, what its findings actually mean to human beings, as well as intuition and imagination. And so what I hope to do in this book is to argue on a basis of neurology and philosophy, supported by the findings of contemporary physics, to suggest that we, the world, and indeed the cosmos, are not at all the way that they are presented to us by the voices of popular science. A heap of pointless random fragments, uh, populated by ourselves who are the playthings of chance engaged in a war of all against all, but that instead there is an unimaginably, in fact literally, for the human mind, uh, impossible to fully imagine, but we must make the attempt, 
an unimaginably rich, complex, beautiful, and responsive cosmos. And it's our birthright, and I want to reintroduce us to it. Just before I bring you in, Philip, because I know there's so much in there that I'm sure you, you react to and will explain your interest in the subject, I just, I just want to ask about this synthesis of science and philosophy, because you say you offer a new synthesis of philosophy and science. You say it's um, important in exciting and liberating both parties. So I just wonder if you could explain that, what this um, you know, unifying of science and philosophy means to you and why it's taken so long. Why are they such sort of the opposites otherwise? Well, I think it's a product of the way in which universities work, partly, and the way in which the Western mind has been trained to think in the last 250 years. It's been said by many great philosophers that the divorce between science and philosophy is a disaster. But in the universities, I think most scientists... Some are very interested indeed in and knowledgeable about philosophy, but, but probably it's a fair generalization to say that to most of them it's of a secondary level of interest, if any, and threatens to slow them down on the race to the next discovery. What this actually means philosophically is a question that might not even be asked. And indeed I find that talking to some scientists, they're quite surprised and almost a little aggrieved that I should question that the idea that everything is just a mechanism, rather like a pop-up toaster or the bike in the garage. So there's that. And then I think there's also a sort of snobbism of philosophers that somehow they can't learn anything from science. I think both of these are mistaken and unfortunate. And what I've tried to do here is to take what I understand about the nature of the brain. And if we're going to talk about meaning what we can know about ourselves and the world, then the brain's not a bad place to start. And show what the philosophical consequences of the structure and functioning of our brain are. In that sense, bringing science and philosophy to bear. And also, I'm not a physicist, but I'm interested in physics and have a group of friendly physicists past whom I run my ideas before publishing them to make sure that I'm not completely mad. Um, and really all three of these strands, if you imagine them as sort of points on the surface of a very large sphere, as you sort of drill down, as we say, or go deeper and deeper, you find that they reveal the same patterns. They, they're not in conflict with one another. They all of them tell the same story, which is wonderfully confirming. If three different starting points lead as they go to the centre to finding something very similar. That, to me, is not a proof that it is right, but it is a sign that we might be on to something. And, indeed, what we find is also in keeping with very ancient wisdom traditions of both East and West. So, all in all, that's what I mean by synthesising science with philosophy, physics and neurology with philosophy. And I think that you first um, both sort of encountered each other at the Blake lecture, which you yes. gave um, in 2016. But before we go into sort of specifics, perhaps you could outline the influence that Ian's thinking and work has had on you since or before then, you and your work and your thinking. Yes. Um, well, I came to Ian's book, the first book, The Master and His Emissary, in about 2010. I think it was published a year before that. Um, it was a revelation because I found this immensely learned man, this uh, literary scholar, this neuroscientist, telling me things that I recognized to be true in a brilliantly clear prose. That was the big surprise, because having read various works of 
well, popular science and philosophy and so on, um, fields of knowledge that aren't noted for their clear prose. But here was someone explaining with great vividness and brilliance something that I'd sort of been conscious of or had felt as if I might be conscious of without really knowing that I was conscious of it. I recognized things he was saying as things I recognized for myself. Now, I, by that time, finished um, my big trilogy, His Dark Materials, and I was engaged on the next series of books I was writing. So I can't say that it had any influence on the first, except that it sort of chimed, it sort of made sense to me. Like Ian, I had been very affected, very moved, very um, enlightened and illuminated by poetry. Uh, Wordsworth, as, as Ian was, but also William Blake, William Blake came to me when I was about 16. I vividly remember the book I first encountered him in. And what I was enthusiastic about was his insistence on life and energy and so on. Everything that lives is holy. Life delights in life. How do you know but that bird that cuts the airy way is an immense world of delight closed to your senses five. He was telling me that the world was alive. The world was full of energy, full of joy, full of wonder and so on. And I kind of felt this, but I didn't see this reflected in very much modern literature. It was there in music. It was there in um, not only the great works of classical music, but also in jazz, which I love and still love. It's also there in the work of Chuck Berry, for example, and rock and roll. This zest, this energy, this, this life, this pulsating rhythmical joy in things. That was what I loved and have always done. And that's what I found Ian talking about as well. It was, it was astonishing, really, that there was so much to say in a sort of neuroscientific way about something that I had felt purely as, as a response to art, to poetry. It's so interesting to hear Philip say all of that, having heard you say that, that, that I think is the exact reaction that you very much hope for when you're writing about uh, ideas and thoughts that can't be articulated. I know you've said people have said to you similarly that your work encapsulates ideas they've had that they can't put into words, which brings us to this idea of, of language, because mm. if these ideas can't be articulated, how, how, does one, how does one talk about them? How does one bring them into the world? With great care and difficulty. And that's partly why I've taken so long writing. At the end of the book, I dare to tackle topics such as values, purpose, and the nature of the sacred. And gosh, uh, that costs me so much, because as soon as you start talking about the sacred, every word you utter is false. And yet it's so real and true and so important. Uh, in fact, the illusion that it means nothing is carried by the fact that everything stated about it is probably false. So it took me a very long time to articulate it, and one has to both say and unsay. I mean, it sounds like it might be very confusing and, 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 and not really very clearly thought through. I hope the reader will not feel that, but will see that I'm trying to guide them through a minefield in which, to either side of a very important path, there are ways in which one can stray off and into danger, but that following a certain path, being aware of the dangers that beset one in following it, enables one to carry on safely towards some sort of a conclusion. Of course, there is no ultimate conclusion on any of these very big topics, 
but I always feel that the right way to use language is sort of against itself. And again, that might be misunderstood uh, as mere confusion, and I'm certainly not an admirer of confusion. In fact, I aspire to a certain kind of clarity, but I always say you can be as clear as you can, but no clearer than that. And that when you start trying to go for greater precision or clarity, you lose it. Because what we're trying to deal with are things for which everyday language hasn't got the right terms. Everyday language has evolved to enable us to tackle practical problems of survival. But we haven't really got an extensive vocabulary for things that language leaves behind. This is why we have poetry. This is the, the point of poetry, is to take language beyond language and therefore make it more rich and more fulfilled as language. But I mean, the point is, I suppose, if, if language and our limited words bring us back, as you were saying music um, expresses these things better, jazz, I think you mentioned, and art, but you're a writer, so how, how does that fit? Well, you, I think you rely you on to, language. It's, it's, it's always been a, a, a curious thing to come and get up against, the fact that language is a left hemisphere thing and not a right hemisphere. But, but, Poetry but, is a sort if of I may right. just interject, it's both. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, of course. There, there's a, I find when I write, I have to sort of trick the, uh, the controlling, the, 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 the left hemisphere. I suppose that's what's going on. I found a way of doing this quite some time ago. I noticed from the way we read, from the way I read, from the way most people, I suspect, read most things, papers, newspapers, magazines, novels, and so on, I don't read every word, uh, you know, strictly and consecutively. My eye leaps from this word to that and so on. And I noticed once that I was looking for things that weren't there because I had misread something that was there. A good example of this, a very good example of this, happened when I was reading a, a piece in the New York Review of Books about Philip Roth. Now, as I was reading this, in the usual way, skipping and going ahead and not really paying attention, I found myself saying, What's it? hang on, what did he say? What did, this, what did this chap say about Updike? There was something about Updike a minute ago. What was that? I looked back and I couldn't find Updike anywhere. What I did find was the word at the beginning of a paragraph, the word unlike. And that had put into my mind, and, I'd, and I thought, well, hang on, I can use this. Um, this is something I can do. And from then on, no, actually it was before that, because I recognised that as an example of what I was already doing. You plant words in the paragraph or the sentence that don't directly relate logically or grammatically to the thing you want to describe, but they surround it with images that will be productively misread by the inattentive reader and suggest the thing that you want to, them to, to imagine. So I, I, I think I'm probably tricking the left hemisphere at that point. <laughs> Is that what he's doing? <laughs> yes, I mean, first of all, just to clear out of the way the hemisphere thing, I mean, one of the problems I always have is that people think that, you know, the left hemisphere is language and reason and the right hemisphere is pictures and emotion. And it, it isn't at all like that. Um, they're both involved in, in everything. And indeed, the left hemisphere is not this cool customer that is totally reliable and a little boring like an accountant, but is, is actually <laughs> prone to fits of rage, is extremely uh, capable of being deluded. I mean, the first part of the three parts of the book demonstrates just how deluded the left hemisphere mm. is. But just to say, to clear that out of the way, language has many aspects, of course, doesn't it, Philip? And there's what I found when I was trying to 
inspire people with a love of literature in Oxford when I was very young was that the process that Academe sanctioned was to take this object that was full of complexity, full of things that were not being said but were being conveyed. Mm. Importantly, they were implicit and they were embodied and they were utterly unique. And it took them and turned them into something general, explicit and disembodied and abstract. And it's this kind of unmagic trick in which, as it were, the beauty of the thing suddenly collapses and you're left with a handful of dust. And so, in my early days, I wrote in my 20s a book called Against Criticism, which was trying to explain why this process was wrong. But what you're doing, I think, when you're cleverly suggesting things to the reader but not actually saying it, is what all great poets do. There's so much in Shakespeare, isn't there, that you you look for it, you can't find it. But it is there. It's being suggested to your mind in all kinds of clever ways. Yeah. Um, yes, uh, something else came to mind as, as I was listening to you there. It's, it's, and I forgot what it was now. Um, it's to do with the business of poetry as magic. Mm. Collingwood, R.G. Collingwood, the philosopher, mm. um, had a phrase called disenchantment. And he was talking about the disenchantment of the world, the world which previously contained a sort of magic, um, now no longer does. I find this with poetry, and I found it very hard when training teachers, as I did for a while, to get them to do more with poetry than translate it into prose. Yes. They thought that once they got a poem full of these and thous and old fashioned, like that sort of thing, once they got it into modern English, they'd done the poem. <laughs> but what they'd done was kill it, actually. The poem was being tortured. And like many victims of torture, it confessed in the end, but what it confessed was worthless. <laughs> it was just, you know, uh, banal. Um, the, the magic of the poetry is in the magic. It is, it, is a sort of, mm. it is a sort of bewitchment. And when they thought they were bothered and bewildered, they were being bewitched. And um, we mustn't ignore that aspect, that dimension of poetry, because that's where the poetry really flowers and really has its effect. Where it has its being, yes. I, I like all of that very much. Um, but I want to, for the audience's sake, to enter an extraordinarily important caveat which is that nowadays when one speaks of magic, one suggests immediately deceit, Mm. conjuring. But actually we're not talking about that, either of us. We're talking about a creative power that actually brings things into being. And this takes me to a topic that I think will be dear to your heart as it is to mine, which is the nature of imagination. Yes. And in the book I tell a story about... um, J.R.R. Tolkien, who was professor of English at Oxford and a fellow of Merton College. And the other fellows, academics, are an enormously sensitive, prickly, narcissistic lot. And they, they get terribly upset if one of them gets more fame than the others. And um, all, all the fellows of Merton got thoroughly sick of guests being brought into dinner and going, Oh, Professor Tolkien, your works are so marvellous. And uh, anyway, one day somebody brought in a guest and was introduced to Tolkien and said, Oh, Professor Tolkien, your works are so, so, so full of imagination. And from behind the newspaper, a cross mathematician was heard to snort, Imagination? Imagination? 
made it all up. And, uh, <laughs> and it sort of puts one finger on the problem between two entirely contradictory meanings of imagination, that which alone can bring us into contact with certain very important, the most important things that exist, and that which deceives. And I was particularly interested in, perhaps I can mention this, the writings of Wordsworth and Coleridge on imagination, and they wanted to make a very important distinction between fantasy and imagination. To them, fantasy turned you away from reality and just clothed it in something prefabricated that came from somewhere else in experience. Whereas imagination was a faculty whereby you looked at something you thought you knew and was apparently familiar to you and suddenly saw into it for the first time and realized that you had never known it at all. Yeah. but that now you did. Now that is the magic that we are talking about. And if I wanted to use the word magic, I would do it very much circumscribed by this idea that it is, we're referring to a creative power that is utterly real, that is quite essential for contacting reality, but is not reducible to a technique or to a fantasy and is in no way to do with deceit. So exactly. You yes. say in demon That's, voices. Yeah. Well, that almost almost verbatim. I think I've written it down. You say you feel a sense of dissociation when you're asked to speak at science fiction and fantasy yeah. um, conventions because you your work is is stark realism. You say. Well, like I try and pretend it's stark realism, <laughs> and people don't know how to deal with that. The, the, the person who um, really, as well as Coleridge and Wordsworth, uh, was was interested in what the imagination was and how it was, was of course William Blake. Yes. Um, who I think got it right when he said you, you only truly see things when you see them with the eye of imagination. Yeah. Um, and what, what he meant by that, I think, is all the associations, the memories, the, uh, the, other, the other things you know, the other things you can see, the, the entire gestalt. Yes. And that's something which you, you're um, very emphatic about. We, yeah. we need to know the whole, the whole gestalt, the whole surrounding context of something before we yeah. know it fully. Yeah. Uh, and to, to isolate something from it and try and um, get out of it what you can get out by torturing it, doesn't work. Yeah, that, that generation of poets and thinkers, mm. the Wordsworths, Coleridge and Blakes and so on, were really on to something. Mm. Mm. And um, we're still, well, I'm, I'm still sort of digesting what they, what, what they yeah, left yeah, to us. Yeah. You say that Blake was, there's a book about Blake that uh, described as the god of the left hemisphere. Perhaps you could explain why Oh, gosh, it. no. Uh, there is a book, a very good book, which I recommend to the audience by Roderick Treaty called Blake and the God of the Left Hemisphere. Oh, yes. And what he is saying is that Blake describes the deist God, the mechanistic engineering God that he'd identified with Newton's concept of the universe as um, the God of the Left Hemisphere, the one that desires power because the point of the left hemisphere is to help us manipulate the world, to grasp things, controls the right hand with which we do the grasping, the getting, the putting together for our own use. And so he was talking about that aspect of the divine as something negative, but Blake had the deepest intuitive sense, so marvelously expressed in his poetry, of something far beyond that, that he you know, that couldn't be reduced to such a formula at all. And he was making that very distinction, in, in a way, between the world, and, in, and that includes God, as conceived 
putting it very much in shorthand by the left hemisphere's way of approaching the world by serial processing, analysis into parts and so forth, and the way of the right hemisphere's take, which is gestalt-wise. For those of you who are not familiar with this term, uh, I can demystify it. We don't have a proper word in English, but um, it's a very important word in psychology. The gestalt is a whole that cannot be reduced to its parts, that when you take it apart, you've lost, the, which is true of pretty much everything, actually. Because the world is composed of gestalten of one kind or another, and certainly great art is mm. like that. So, you know, the, this way of seeing things is absolutely, let me stress this, absolutely core to good science as well. In case there are people saying, well, yes, it's all very well, it's airy-fairy stuff coming from people who've spent too much time with poets. They didn't really understand what the world's made of. It's made of stuff, and Newton had it all worked out. Well, actually, of course, modern physics tells us that it's all much more complicated than that, and that our minds help uh, influence what there is in the cosmos. But... When you read, as I have done in preparing this book, the stories of many of the great scientists and great mathematicians, how they reached their discoveries, at some stage there was some very hard sequential workaday work. But when the discoveries came, they came through the imagination, which saw a connection, a shape, which hadn't been seen before. Very much like, in fact, what Philip is talking about. And so for real science to make steps forward, for maths to make discoveries, requires a sense of beauty and a sense of form. I mean, it's so extraordinary when you listen to mathematicians describing how they were guided, and physicists, how they were guided to an amazing insight that we now accept is correct. Very often, they, they point to explicitly a sense of beauty in it. So there is no war between science and the arts. This is another mistake, like the idea that philosophy and science should be separated. We need to get out of our silos. We need to have universities where, as it were, there's discussion between these departments and not just a superficial conversation, but a real mutual understanding. I was going to say, what, when you talk about things that the way of understanding them is, is sort of formless before we've given them names, you, you talk in the book about Wordsworth, as you were just saying, and how he describes the sort of optimum time when he was young, mm. before anything had been. Yes. Um, everything was alive for him, and you, and you quote um, from the Ode on in, in, uh, Intimations of Immortality from Recollections of Early Childhood, this wonderful time when everything was new, everything was exciting, yes. uh, inarticulable. Yes. Yes. So is, um, from both of you, this, this sense that the time, the optimum time of thinking and seeing the world is, is through a childlike mind. I mean, you, that comes into... Well, possibly. yeah, there was a time when Meadow, Grove and Stream, the exactly, earth that's that's right, yeah. really I thought one of you yeah, yeah, might quote it. Um, yeah, I love that poem. It's a, it's a wonderful description of the way that we grow up. And it's, it's um, something that I was very interested in as a stage in our development as human beings. In, the, in his Dark Materials, I wrote about the time when, uh, with the coming of puberty, um, it often coincides with a, a, a change in our intellectual apprehension of the world and um, a loss of innocence. A loss of, I saw this when I was teaching children of this age, who, when they came to the school, were young and primary school age children, and they could dance and they could draw pictures without any self-consciousness. But as they grew, suddenly they became self-conscious. Or not suddenly, but gradually they became self-conscious. I can't draw as well as him, 
And she's much better at that. Than, and they, they became sort of enclosed. All sorts of things were happening to them. Their bodies were changing shape. Their voices were changing. All sorts of emotions were going on and their sort of turmoil. It's a great time of change. And that's what I was um, writing about in his Dark Materials. It's a very interesting stage in our human development. And the question is what we do with it. Do we welcome it? Do we nurture it when we see it in other people? Do we say, oh, you'll go through this, don't worry, it's all going to go. It happens to all of us. And it, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's been better described, actually, than in an essay by the German romantic writer Heinrich von Kleist, in an essay which he called On the Marionette Theatre, which deals with this loss of, in Blake's terms, innocence, this coming of experience, this time when we lose a sort of... Um, sense of jointness with the world and we feel, we feel isolated from it. It's something that you either have to live with or go through or come to terms with or something. Because we're not the same after it. And this is, this is what I was writing about at the end of His Dark Materials when Lyra loses the power to see, to understand this instrument that she's had, the alethiometer. She can't read it anymore. She's lost the power to do that. But there is another way which is by learning, by intellectual graft, by hard work. In, in Kleist's terms, he describes a dancer who is free of self-consciousness, wonderfully free in all her movements and so on. Uh, but that's because she has learned consciously to do the things that previously she did unconsciously. Now, this isn't something that I can relate very closely to left hemisphere, right hemisphere thing, but it's something that interests me greatly because... It's what Wordsworth was talking about with Shades of the Prison House. Mm -hmm. It's what Blake was talking about in, the, in, in, in Innocence Changing to Experience. And I wonder, Ian, how does this... What's, what's going on? When, <laughs> Can I add what's going yes, on and how do when, we when, overcome <laughs> it? How do we carry on to see well, like that? Well, there are two questions there. I mean, what's going on and how do we overcome it? And what's going on, I think, is really not the most striking difference between the left and right hemisphere, but possibly the most important one. And that only dawns on people after a while. It's the distinction between presence and representation. <laughs> now, we are so used to already pre-digesting everything in our experience, already having an image, a symbol, a map, a diagram, a theory, that we find it very hard to remain with the actual experience as whatever it is is coming into being for us. What Heidegger called presencing. Uh, it, it was a neologism in German, Anwesen, uh, to use Anwesen as a verb, and we have adopted in English presencing, which means that through one's awareness of something, something comes more into being for us. And I think mindfulness is one of the ways in which in a very simple way, we, we are trying to teach ourselves again to just be present rather than already have gone off into our mind into a representation. But mindfulness aside, this is extraordinarily important because I think what Wordsworth is pointing to is that when you are young, things are fresh and you are really experiencing them and you're really open to them. You're not already substituting your theory of reality, your map of reality for the reality that is being mapped. But we, as we grow older, find this very hard to avoid. And I think actually also the modern, the contemporary world in which we live does this to the, the greatest extent that has possibly historically ever existed. To the extent that now I think a lot of people find it very difficult to tell the difference between a theory and experience of the mm. reality. Um, a couple of friends have stories about driving and navigating and one of them says, 
well, the sat-nav says we're there. And the driver looks at them and says, I don't think we are. We're supposed to be at Penge sub-post office, but we're somewhere on the South Downs. Well, the sat-nav says that we're there, so we must be there. Uh, you know, this is the... Where we are. But to presencing and representation, this is the big difference in the right hemisphere to which things are fresh and new and once we think oh it's one of those it's stale i've got it i've got it a competition hold it put it in a category it literally you can see on imaging that the processing moves towards the left hemisphere mm. so that is a distinction what we do about it i don't know i mean although being aware i mean i'm a great believer as a psychiatrist that the first thing in getting anyone to change is making them aware of what's going wrong at the moment what they're doing wrong otherwise they won't know what to do but there is something important about what Philip said, I think, about the dancer, and it's in Clyde's ending, that although one loses that fluency, it can be recaptured later after the innocence has been lost. Yeah. And this is like the, a very important idea to me, that there is wisdom, the other side of foolishness, and there is knowledge, the other side of ignorance, and there is innocence, the other side of experience. There's the innocence of a child, and there's the innocence of a saint. And these, one is earned through long suffering, and it's probably a richer thing than was lost, if you see what mm. I mean. One sentence I was very struck by towards the end of your book is where you said that James, meaning William James, mm. is very rarely wrong. <laughs> yes. And, um, I've been reading the varieties of religious experience yes. since I was a schoolboy and yes. found it fascinating always. What do you think about his famous distinction between once born and twice born? Did that, you know, were you aware of thinking about that before you sort of instantiated it in the hemisphere idea? Um, I wasn't, but, but in the writing, um, I, 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 I did incorporate that exact saying of, of, yeah. of, of, of James. Um, because I think that there are some, he said, there are some people who are lucky enough to be sort of once born, mm. but most of us have to be twice born. We have to go through suffering to find these yes. things. And I, I think that's, that's probably right. There are these very exceptional individuals who seem to have a kind of rare, intuitive understanding. But, yeah, I mean, I, I've, on James, I mean, I just want to pay homage. I, I, I think he was one of the most important philosophers of the last 150 years. Mm. Uh, and the pragmatists in general, C.S. Peirce and John Dewey, American pragmatists, very, very important. Hello, it's Vass here. One of our all-time favourite guests at How To Academy is back. Yuval Noah Harari's next book tells the story of how information networks have made and unmade our world. Nexus, a brief history of information networks from the Stone Age to AI, is out in September and available to pre-order now. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I mean, shall I move on? Because I know no, that there's ahead. a lot. We have limited time, and I'm sure there's yeah. a lot probably no, you no. might want to, um, to ask uh, of Ian. But I, one of the things I think that reminds me of a lot of that you write about is how you talk about the artist in doing that, in that rediscovering process. You, you said the sort of creative ad- imagination neither sees, just sees, uh, nor just creates, but brings into existence through combination um, of both, rendering the authorship of what emerges ambiguous, and this is how we bring all our world into being. Yes, yes. Um, And it it strikes me that what you talk about with the intentional fallacy, as work, um, good work, free art, and Shakespeare, you you talk about Wordsworth, and I'd say Philip Pullman probably too, um, as as good art goes out into the world and is recontextualised all the time, that's the ambiguity that you're sort of aspiring to. Yes, I mean, what I want to avoid at all costs, and I I spend the first few pages of the introduction on, is falling into one of two positions that people commonly adopt. One is that there just is a truth out there that's completely independent of the knowing of it, and it's our job to find a straight path to it. That's the sort of thing theory of truth that the left hemisphere would embrace. Um, and I'm contrasting, uh, uh, and there is another group of people who are postmodernists, I suppose, of a certain persuasion, who hold the opposite, that there is no truth at all, that we make everything up and therefore everything's as good as everything else. I think both of these are utterly disastrous positions. <laughs> there is truth. It's very, very important. Otherwise, there'd be no point in saying anything or doing anything at all for any of you. So it's a question of deciding what is more true and in what context it is true. And it's that process through which we encounter. Everything is an encounter or a relationship. There aren't things. That's, the, the, the matter with things is a, is a pun on a number of, of levels, but one is that we believe the, the world is made up of material things. But I believe that relationships are even more important than the things. I don't mean just morally important. I think they are prior ontologically to the things that get related. And that's not such a crazy idea as it may sound to you. And and I know physicists who will support this idea, that relationships are actually the primary thing that the cosmos exists in, um, and not just things. So it's... uh, Sorry, my my idea, just to finish, uh, and then I hand over, but is that the world comes into being through our relationship with it, and it's not just made up by us, but it's also not just some remote nothing to do with us out there. It, it comes into being through the coming together of the two. Uh, the physicist Carlo Rovelli, in his latest book, Helgoland, comes to a very similar conclusion, that things are what they are because of the relationships between them. Uh, and I found that very interesting. The, the, the nature of quantum physics and the mysteriousness mm. of things as you get smaller and smaller is, uh, is, is very present to you. Um, I think it is to me. I don't fully under... Well, no. So who was it who said, if you understand it, you haven't? You've got it wrong. Yes, quite, yes. That was um, Richard Feynman or somewhere. Yes. Um, but uh, it, it is a most extraordinary world that we're living in. It's very big and it's very small, and we're about the midpoint of those two things. But um, we're quite well placed to see the very large and the very small, both with the aid of science and its instruments and with the aid of the imagination which helps us to see the context of things, the gestalt, and so on. And physicists are becoming more and more sure that reality is not a matter of little billiard balls that knock into each other. And people who say it is 
exponents of the nothing buttery school, mm. Francis Crick, no less, who said the, all the entire apparatus of poetry and life and art and everything is, is nothing more than the movement of atoms and molecules. Well, it bloody well is. <laughs> it's a great deal more than that. And um, people who get stuck at that level are not, are, are, are not seeing what's really there, I think. I, I, I love all that. Um, and uh, I like the, your mention of the billiard balls as well, because one of the things I would, I would just say is that, although it's true that we're used to thinking of quantum mechanics as operating at a very small yeah. scale, which it does, it also operates right across the field. And, it, it, you know, we sort of have an idea that Newtonian mechanics works well in the middle, but at the extremes of very large and very small, there's a quantum universe. Mm. Actually, there's a quantum universe right across the entire spectrum, from the most minute to the largest. It's just that a Newtonian approximation works quite well if you want to build a garage. Mm. So, the, <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's the point. And... So when you come to the quantum thing, people say, oh, yes, but that only operates at the very small, but I really want to banish that. I've learned from physicists that it operates at every level, and it's one of the reasons why the notion of a predictable billiard ball universe, Laplace's 18th century concept, is completely uh, out of the window. Mm. I mean, it, it, there is no question that, there are, that, that the, the movements of atomic particles are not... In, are not are not no fully knowable, not because we don't have enough knowledge or better machines, but because they're intrinsically unknowable yeah. and unpredictable. But when you come to the everyday level, there's a lovely uh, image from one physicist that I quote in the book, which is, if you imagine billiard balls colliding, uncertainty comes into those, the position of those collisions at a certain point. And I thought, well, I suppose so, how many collisions might there have to be before you'd notice this quantum uncertainty? Perhaps a million or, or perhaps only 10,000? The answer is eight. <laughs> eight collisions. After that, it's not fully predictable. That is fascinating. I knew on my way here that we were going to have not nearly enough time and every <laughs> single question goes off into another possible hour of discussion. Just before I open it up to audience questions, let's just have a quick look at what is happening to the world because of the sort of domination of the right hemisphere by the left hemisphere, which we, we've spoken about, um, which of course you, you, you write about a great deal in the book. I mean, the left hemisphere, if it dominates, as you say, it gives us the idea that we are mani uh, manipulate things and... and how does that disturb the world as we know it? I mean, of course, the natural world comes to mind given the week that we're having with COP26 and the way we yes. view nature as something that we can just manipulate and, and do as we, as we like with for our own use. Yes, I mean, the, the view that nature is just a heap of resource for us to use is, is a very obvious case in point. But it goes very, very much further than that because we have this, uh, unfortunately, very simple bureaucratic model, really, like um, some very poor local government's idea of how to make something happen, an entire, a chain of linear events that will bring about a result. But actually, when you go too far in any one direction, you find you've achieved the exact opposite. And at the end of the book, I produce a long passage of paradoxes that we find. We set out to do this, we achieve the precise opposite. Why is this? Well, I have a whole chapter on what's called the coincidence of opposites, that, in fact, 
the cosmos is not this linear model like this, but that actually opposites are powerfully related. And when you are not aware that in espousing one thing, you are espousing also its opposites and bringing the dark side into being, then really bad things happen in society. And unfortunately, I feel that we now live in a world in which positions are so polarized, conversations are so schematized, um, there is no room for subtlety, for nuance, for seeing that in fact the opposite also has something to be said for it. If we could get back there, we might possibly be worth saving, but um, it's, it, it's up for grabs whether we can save ourselves. People talk about saving the planet. The planet will look after itself and something better will come along. But actually, I have a soft spot for human beings. I'm, I, I'm rather sad to think that we will be extinguishing ourselves. Yes, it's civilization that's fragile, not, uh, not nature. Absolutely. Uh, nature will um, survive whatever we throw at it, but um, will civilize? I, I hope so. I hope so very much. But it doesn't look as if we've got the right cast of mind to do that. We need to... Well, I was very struck by your last chapter where you talk about the sense of the sacred and this sense that we have lost, generally, um, a sense that there is something beyond us and our families and our societies and our politics beyond that into which we are somehow connected and in the light of which we somehow understand who we are and why we're here and what we're doing. That used to be religion, of course. That used to be the, um, the parish church and the larger church beyond that and beyond that the sense that there was a great cosmic drama that had taken place and we are part of that. That is a terrible thing to have lost, now, it's impossible to believe literally now in the things that it seems to be describing. Richard Dawkins doesn't think it's impossible. He thinks that religious people all do believe literally in Adam and Eve and, and so on. He's quite wrong. But it's difficult now. And yet I'm fully in agreement with Ian that we need something. We need something that is more important than we are so that we can relate to it, so that we can find our own sense of importance and, uh, and, and uh, meaning, uh, meaning towards e to each other, and to the society we live in, and to the planet we live on, and to the cosmos beyond that. Uh, we need that, and it doesn't seem to be provided by the church anymore. Do you see it provided anywhere? Because you describe all the way through the book it as a Western contemporary problem. Mm. Do you see um, very, any cultures uh, existing today where you've, you feel hope that they're getting it right? Well, yes, unfortunately, though... Our own culture is so dominant now and so widespread and so aggressively pushed by commerce. It's, it's effectively capitalism gone wild. It is driving the destruction of other cultures um, very, very fast. I went to Romania um, a couple of years ago and it has survived invasions by, by Tatar hordes. It had survived the Nazis. It had survived Stalinism. And in only 10 years, it collapsed in the face of capitalism, with people becoming unhappy, miserable, uprooted, saying they no longer knew where they belonged. And, you know, the, the destruction of an ancient way of life. Now, if you take that round the world, the most valuable people from whom we could learn are people who do preserve this very sense. They don't need churches for it, mm -hmm. but they preserve this sense that Philip is talking about. And we are destroying their cultures and their habitat. That's as grievous as destroying animals and, and plants. So, I, I, yes, I, I think that is the, the problem. But you said, is there any hope? I think there is, because I think 
You see, wherever I go, um, I find an audience of people of all ages who respond very warmly to the message that we've been sold a pup, that the Dawkinses of this world have told us it's all very simple, and it just isn't as simple as that at all. And they want to understand more. And so it's that wanting, because if we powerfully want a, another vision, we can be led there. And all I can do in the book is say, my friend, let me take you by the hand, let me show you a landscape, a country, which I think is absolutely real. I think you will recognize it. And then you'll be shocked and think this is very different. You'll say, gosh, I knew this all along, but somehow it has been drummed out of me. And, and it's that that Philip started by saying, and that so many readers have responded to me on the master and his emissary anyway. I think I'm going to take it to the audience questions. Um, but I, actually, you could quickly say about your message. I've heard you talk about it before. You feel, apart from all the negative and the worries that you have, a general feeling of hope, don't you? Well, I am um, always conscious that hope is a virtue, not a, not a <laughs> tendency or a, or a, um, a yes. disposition. Hope is one of the virtues. Yes. And um, it's something you should do because it's a good thing to do. So, yes, I am hopeful, because we should be. <laughs> um, you. On a hopeful note, um, I'm sure that many of you have, have questions, and I'm sorry if we don't get through them. We've got microphones in the audience, and also um, uh, questions coming in from, from home. But if you put your hand up high, then... Um, uh, thank you, Ian, first of all. I, I'm a brain-spotting therapist. I don't know how much you know of brain-spotting, but your work is referenced a lot in the trainings and uh, in the work, so thank you for that. I wonder what you think about technology and whether technology plays a role in a paradigm shift towards moving beyond materialism and what some people are calling transhumanism, this next stage of, of virtual identities and virtual existences and moving beyond matter. Hmm. Uh, I'm not hopeful about that I must be very honest I see that as really the triumph of the abstract, the representational over the real embodied and experienced which is, which is reality when one talks about transcending materialism one doesn't mean turning one's back on matter Goethe, who I think was one of the profoundest thinkers of all time and of course a scientist, a philosopher, a poet, a playwright, and a great thinker, pointed out that we don't find the eternal by turning our back on time, but by going into the things of time. We don't find the spiritual by turning our minds, our backs on matter, but by going deeper into the material and seeing it as ensouled. And that is this bringing together of opposites that I think is so important. If I could just leave everybody with that idea that what I'm about is not polarizing, but trying to bring together things that appear to be opposites because they're really not opposites. Well, just, just to second the idea of embodiment, it's, it's, it's very important to have a body. Um, the idea of being downloaded into a, onto a hard disk or something fills me with horror. And in fact, <laughs> you, you couldn't be because all the memories of your body, all the memories your my finger has, for example, a memory, a very clear memory of what it feels like to stick it into a woodworking machine. Now, that's important. That might come up. Uh, and and I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be without my body. You know, I'm getting older, it's failing in various ways, but I'm very fond of it, really. And I don't want to be without it. Embodiment is so important. Matter is so important. Absolutely. 
Yeah. Why it's so wonderful to have so many real life bodies in, yes, in yes, this yes, room yes. this evening. Yes, yes. Um, is this lady here? Uh, thank you, Jan. Thank you, Philip. I was a big fan of your books when I was a teenager, so really happy to be here. Um, so, talking about matter and mind and body, uh, my question is about psychedelics and um, what are your views on their potential for bridging that divide between the sacred and science? I think, it, I think it's very interesting, and I, I don't have a, a fixed view on it. Um, I mean, of course, they're not necessary for having a spiritual experience, that's obvious. And I think that plenty of people do clearly have what would have to be called spiritual experiences taking mind-altering drugs. So both those things are true. Um, and there may even be value, I'm, I'm hopeful, in cheating depression, as is now... I mean, psychologists at Harvard and Yale started looking into this in the 60s and got their knuckles wrapped, but I think that's now becoming more, more um, plausible. But I don't see them as really more than an adjunct. I see them as something interesting, worth exploring perhaps for some people, but not as intrinsic to the coming together of mind and matter, which seems to me a, a business of attending to the world, particularly to the natural world. It's easier to become divorced from one's body, oddly, in, in a city, which is a very material place, because There's something about nature, we know this from research now, that is absolutely incontrovertible, that spending time in nature is enormously important to spiritual well-being, physical well-being, cognitive well-being, and that people deprived of it become uh, angry, short-tempered, don't think straight, are miserably unhappy. So, I mean, the nature is our home, and that is where mind and matter are most obviously together which explains why I very inconveniently live on a lump of rock off the northwest coast of Scotland. <laughs> Just very briefly, William James comes to mind again. That passage where he talks about consciousness, we are separated from other kinds of consciousness by the, what is it, the filmiest of screens? Filmiest of screens. Um, and beyond that screen, there are entirely different ways of seeing things. Psychedelic drugs, I've no doubt. I've read Aldous Huxley and so on. I haven't ever taken a... Um, uh, such a drug, but I believe that they can introduce us to another way of seeing things. Well, good, let's, uh, let's, let's see what it does. Absolutely. If it can be used in the treatment of depression or something, excellent. Uh, yeah, I have a question for Mr. Pullman. Um, I wanted to know when you're writing a story, how do you decide what's going to happen next? <laughs> Because I'm a student of composition and um, sometimes I find I don't know where to go next or, or kind of where the piece wants to go. Um, um, when you say composition, you mean musical composition? Yes. Yeah. It's interesting. I was talking to George Benjamin, the composer, once, and he said with an air of great um, solemnity, the great difficulty in composing music is knowing which note to write next. <laughs> and I was so impressed I wrote this down on the table. <laughs> Because oddly enough, that's exactly what I find when I'm writing. Um, the great difficulty in language. Yes, I know where I'm going roughly, um, but not in any detail. I'd much rather be surprised by it. Um, some writers, we're all different, and there's no one way of doing it. Some writers make a complete plan from beginning to end. They know exactly what's going to happen and what happens in chapter three and whether they meet in chapter four or four. I couldn't possibly do that. I want to be surprised. I, want to, I, I, I don't know what's going to happen on the way. And I like being surprised. So 
yes and no. There you are. <laughs> it's interesting to hear you say in your video that this book you didn't really intend, it, it wrote itself, it, it took you on the journey and you couldn't hold it back. Yes, I mean, I wish it had written itself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, what, what I intended was that, in, a, in essence, um, I didn't know exactly what I was letting myself in for. And it was, I think it's fair to say, it was like the concept of being possessed by a, a daimon, you know, not necessarily a bad demon, but something that was, was more than I knew, that wanted to say, yeah. but you must do this too now. Yeah. And, of course, once you're committed up to a point, you can't get it back. What I, what I wanted to say about what you had commented on, um, because I thought it was so lovely, is, as you know, so many writers have said, you know, sort of, where did the character get that idea from? You know, it just happened. It was as though the pen wrote this thing. But this idea of, I had a vague idea, and it came into... F this, is, this is not only an image of, of creation of an artist, but it's the image of the creation of the, of the world. I don't mean by God, but I mean the, create, the coming into being of the yes. world. This idea that... As I say, there's a reverberation or a dialogue or an encounter. There's an encounter with something which is a not nothing. I mean, it's got a presence. It calls to you. And as you answer to it, it comes a bit more into being and you come into a bit more of being. And yes. it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a reverberative creative process. Exactly. And it's, it's like the gestalt has a sort of feel and more and more it comes into focus as you do honour to it. Yeah. Um, one last little thing. I think the word to use, I use, I try to use in connection with writing is not intend, it's hope. Again, hope. <laughs> I can't say I intend to write a very funny book that'll have everyone in stitches. I couldn't possibly do that. But if by chance I have a funny phrase here or a good turn of narrative somewhere else, jolly good. But I, don't, I, I can't intend these things, you see. Uh, other writers can perhaps, but I can't. All I can do is hope that it'll come out right in the end. Dana, because I think that's a question coming in from the audience at home. Yes, Hello. thank you. Um, John from the live stream. Two characters in Philip's new Lyra trilogy interest me. The cynical postmodern philosopher and the reductionist scientist. They seem to be caricatures of Ian's left hemisphere. Could you comment? Yeah, these were, um, these were characters, not based on any particular characters, but they were... Um, people who I wanted to put in because they do affect young people. When you reach the right age for a book, it's, it, it hits you very hard. And poor little Lyra, little I shouldn't call her that, poor Lyra um, has met the work of these two very influential, very powerful writers and been sort of knocked off course by it. And as a result, her demon Panthalaimon says that she's, her, her imagination's gone. So he sets off to find it. This... Uh, I, I was glad to meet these characters, actually, especially the postmodernist, in something that Ian says towards the, in the second part of, of this new book. How, and I'm so struck that I wrote it down. I've got it here, and I'll tell you what it was um, about postmodernism. Postmodernism uh, and deconstruction are the perfect expression of the left hemisphere trying to understand right hemisphere language. I thought it was terribly good. Actually, that's from the master and his emissary. But they are um, powerful tendencies in thought, those two things. And they need to be looked at and fought. Thank you. Thank you so much. I wanted to come back to the, um, the when you were speaking about the sacred. And that I haven't got your books 
hopefully I'll get them tonight, um, but what I wanted to ask is the correlation between what we've sacrificed. So we, we, you were speaking about the sacred and you spoke about religion, but there's inside the religion, there's a lot that's been sacrificed by how religion's been constructed, the subjugation and marginalisation of women in the religious sects, all of them. And I wonder if we, there is a correlation now that's being made when we speak about Mother Earth and Earth and nature being sacred of what we've sacrificed in the feminine in terms of the place in, in decision-making and community. And I'm not speaking it from a feminist perspective, but I want to add, I recently, um, some months ago, spoke to Rupert Sheldrake, who was speaking about the intelligence of our bodies. And I said, do you think all of the organs have an intelligence and is our body sacred? And he said, yes, they're sacred messages in the somatic intelligence of our body. And I wonder if we've sacrificed that knowing, the embodied experience of what we know in our bodies as sacred, also to do with the feminine and what's coming up around the women and the feminine at the moment. Is that a question or just a statement? But I hope you can respond to it. I mean, these are vast, vast issues, aren't they? Um, rather difficult to address very briefly. I think I, I won't, don't want to make any blanket statements about religions because they vary so much and the manifestations of even one religion can be so multifarious as to be almost opposite to one another. So I think you're right to emphasize some elements that have been neglected in some traditions. I think it's important to try and focus on a fully rounded vision that incorporates all of those elements. And I don't think that it necessarily is either best found without any kind of religion or best found in a religion. I, I, I think to be black and white about it is, is, is something I would try to resist. Um, I was wondering, um this is for you, Mr. Pullman. Uh, out of your books, which one was your favourite and why? My favourite book, what, of mine? Yes. Um, <laughs> well, I have so many favourite books of other people's, so there's hardly room for one of mine. I think the one, I'm, I, the one that works best, I think, is a book called Clockwork. Clockwork, or All Wound Up. That's the one I think I want to have put on my tombstone. <laughs> Um, I'm so sorry, genuinely, that uh, we have to, to, to leave it there because there are so many more things we could go through, as you can tell. Um, but you'll have that all, all to come and perhaps we can all meet again and do part two. But thank you all very, very much indeed for coming. And Philip, Ian, thank you so much indeed for, for doing this. Can I... I just a very quick word. This is the most extraordinary book. It's got evidence on every page of a mind that's stocked so richly and has meditated so long and so clearly on the most important subject we can face. I can't recommend it enough. It's an astonishing book that will change many, many people's lives. It's a great book, and I'm very honoured to be speaking about it tonight with Phil. This week's podcast starred Ian McGilchrist and Philip Pullman. The host was Hannah McInnes... And it was produced by Esme Bright, Dana Outcolt, and myself. The editor was John Doughty. If you'd like to hear more from Ian, his interview on the podcast from last year is available wherever you're listening to this. And please do take the time to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Your support is the petrol in the engine of this podcast, and we really, really appreciate it. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>